Welcome back for another weekend with Rick Wagner getting it right here on KNTZ 1192.7 and KGLN 980 and 101.3. And, of course, the Internet and a couple other places. And you can check our podcast out. And you can find some of the stories and stuff we talk about and a lot of other stuff, a lot of other good stuff at our website, therickwagnershow.com. So I'm going through my notes and some other stories and stuff that I put aside. And I, I just can't talk about some of them. I'm looking at this one, and it's too depressing. It's uh, shocking and depressing. I mean, for those of you who've been following some of the news that's come out of Israel about the behavior of the Hamas terrorists during the October 7th incursion into Israel, uh, I would suggest that you carefully choose what you read, not because it's wrong, but because it's disturbing, disturbing at a level that is kind of surprising to find uh, in modern times, although I'm well aware that all sorts of things are happening out there in the world, many of which we don't hear anything about. But some of these things are, well, they're horrific. And the fact that there's some sort of moral equivalency that people are trying to put into this Israeli, Hamas, now Hezbollah, Iran, you can name it, conflict, is jarring. It's good in one way. We need to see what's going on, particularly on our college campuses. Just when we thought it was as bad as we could imagine, it's worse. Not only are they apparently anti-Semitic and don't particularly care for this country and a lot of these protests, but they are also dumb. And I don't mean dumb like you can't speak, but I mean like uneducated. And someone's spending lots of money. Forty, fifty to eighty thousand dollars a year at some of these Ivy League schools to supposedly educate these people to know nothing. What exactly are they learning? They certainly don't have any grasp of the history or actually what's going on in the Middle East. Many of them I doubt if they could point to Israel on a map, and yet they are very opinionated on the subject. I mean there's nothing worse than being aggressively stupid. I think that we see the results of that. So if you're spending all this money on education and people don't seem to know what they're talking about, on top of which having really, really uncomfortable and bizarre and damaging ideas, someone's not getting their money's worth. They need to, you know, return their money to some of these people's parents, for God's sakes. It's terrible. Uh, Oops, banging my microphone. That's how upset I am. I'm banging my microphone around. I am upset. Uh, Read some of the stories this week for chest. Too much, and I'm just not going to talk about a couple of them I have here because the descriptions of what happened there are they're too graphic and disturbing. And I just want my audience have some of these images in their mind on a on a weekend for our sakes. But let's get some things cleared up here on the uh, lo- more local front, Colorado. Ken Buck, he's the uh, five-term congressman from Colorado. It's sort of in his district as sort of the Greeley, Fort Collins area, that kind of thing over there, for those of you who are familiar with it. And Ken Buck used to be a, the DA, as I recall, in Greeley, because I remember meeting him. And he was a little bit of an oddball, I thought. A pretty good law enforcement uh, forward kind of guy. But as he's been in Congress, especially this last year, things have just uh, not quite gelled in his head in some way. 
So he's he's not going to run again. The word on the street, you know, I have a lot of street cred. I think everybody knows that. Is that he's trying to get a job on a cable channel, and of course it would be CNN because that's where he's been appearing a lot. And his announcement about not running, not only has his behavior been erratic, in some ways, uh, it, some of the things he says are at odds with other things that he says. But in his announcement that he wasn't going to run, let me read something to you here. Let's see. Americans are rightfully concerned about our nation's future. Look at Republicans in Washington for a course correction. Well, that's good. But their hope for Republicans to take decisive action may be in vain. We're in a collision course with reality. In a steadfast commitment to truth, even uncomfortable truths, is the only way forward. Too many Republican leaders are lying to America, claiming that the 2020 election was stolen, describing January 6th as an unguided tour of the Capitol, and asserting that ensuing prosecutions are a weaponization of our justice system. All right. He's a Republican. Claims to be a conservative. He's a member of the House Freedom Caucus. And I'm sorry, but I disagree with two or three of those things right off the top of my head. Uh, I don't know if I'm ready to say the 2020 election in Toto was stolen, but I can sure say there was a lot of weird stuff going on that we need to keep investigating to try and not have it happen again. And so people can get some confidence back in their election process, because if they don't have it, and the whole thing's going to go down the tube. And that's related to the idea here that, you know, our justice system is seems to be completely out of kilter. And it's not on our side anymore. Not that it should be on a side, but it should be, uh, I suppose, on the side of justice, uh, the rule of law, equal application of the law. That's the big part of this. You know, the left for years have has made hay about the equal application, the equal protection clause in the Constitution doesn't appear to apply to conservatives, Republican conservatives, or people to disagree with them. That seems to be what's what's happening. I mean, just outside looking in, sure looks that way. So I, I think that is an incorrect statement to say that uh, it's wrong to feel like some of the prosecutions are a weaponization of our justice system. I, I just personally, I don't know how you can not look at some of these things and feel that way. And I don't think many people were describing January 6th as an unguided tour of the Capitol. There may be a few people out there. It was, for the most part, a bad idea. It was illegal. But the response has been, let's let's use the term that they love to use in Congress now about Israel. It's disproportionate. How can the same people that are calling for a proportionate response from Israel over the brutality and just disgusting behavior of Hamas. At the same time, don't think that some of these prosecutions, sentences, and of course, certainly what happened to Ashley Babbitt, the only person killed there, was is a proportional response. It just clearly is not. It doesn't mean people didn't break the law and shouldn't be punished for it. People have done that. But the degree of punishment and the selection of those to be punished versus others who have engaged in much more violent activity in America's cities tells quite a story. Ken Buck apparently doesn't, you know, doesn't quite get in on that. He appears to have developed uh, a bad case of McCainitis. You know, McCain became like that too, where he just didn't know where he was going to be. 
It was a little easier because he was really interested in, in John McCain to the point where you could figure out, okay, what would make him the most hay about his maverick behavior? Maverick, yes, maverick. And not from Top Gun, I might add. But nevertheless, I mean, he was, he would be all over the place too because he wanted to be sort of this Romney-esque kind of thing. We have all these people that, you know, sort of have their own mental conditions. You know, there's Romneyism where you are, you know, no matter what you think, you are the last honest man in America. And you're just crusading through things and people don't understand you. No, they don't. And they don't deserve you because man of such purity and crusading instincts uh, is is wasted on uh, the American political system, apparently. Ken Buck seems to have landed in the McCainism piece where he's kind of all over the place. He's not reliable for anything, apparently, now. So he's going to be out, and I don't know if here in Colorado it's going to be any kind of easy way to hold that seat for Republicans. We have not had the best luck in Colorado in candidate selection and support and just the whole party apparatus in our state is at the state level a mess. I think that that's a pretty clear way to put it. And so I'm not sure they can hustle it up and get a good candidate out there and get them elected. They haven't shown a lot of that up to now. So I think that unless there's a pretty good Republican sweep, we're going to have a problem in his district. I'll be back. Okay, folks, thanks for sticking around. I appreciate it. Rick Wagner here. Getting it right. Uh, so we're here in 1100 and KZZ and KGLN and, you know, two or three other little places. And, uh, of course, the Internet. I appreciate the Internet audience out there. And you can get what we're talking about here on our website as a podcast. But as I mentioned earlier, I wanted to talk to somebody over in Denver, the Queen City of the Plains, about what was going on over there, having just sort of seen a lot of pictures and talked to a couple of people. So I, I have a, I have a friend over there, and uh, I ask him to come on and talk about it a little bit. He not we're not going to give his name because he'd prefer not to have somebody come by and spray paint, you know, the front of his uh, front of his house, and then uh, you know who knows what maybe put of his tent. Who knows? He's sort of a cape crusader over there, and that's what we refer to him here. So, uh, Mr. Crusader, uh, thanks for uh, joining us here today. And we we wanted to first of all just kind of describe what you see in the business district and the you know the lower downtown area over there in Denver now. Well, Rick, thanks for uh, having me on the show. So I've been in this neighborhood for 50 years, and what's happened in the last 12 months uh, is just so disgusting. We have a giant population of unhoused, drug-addicted, severely mentally mentally ill people in Lots of parts of downtown Denver, but pretty much the entire city. Right. So, uh, but uh, beyond the city council, who are we talking about? Beyond the city council, <laughs> I'm, I'm just saying that you know that describes some of them very well. So, yeah, I'm, I'm being I'm facetious there. Yeah, I, when you say that, I mean we're really looking at a situation like a lot of people are seeing in the Los Angeles, San Francisco area. A lot of tents on the sidewalks and stuff like that, right? Uh, tense with, with not very good people. That's correct. What happens to foot traffic in an area like that? Well, so there's been numerous articles written about uh, recent businesses that have just been forced to close. 
uh, at least three bars, uh, bars, restaurants, uh, in, in prime parts of downtown have been forced to close. Now, Lodo because, area, uh, lower downtown area, I saw some of that, yeah. The Lord Lodo, uh, in the ballpark neighborhood, uh, you know, customers just don't want to deal with that. Uh, it's, it's not sanitary. And the, these, these people that are in these, uh, encampments, uh, these aren't people that just lost their job. These, these aren't people that are just down on their luck, uh, lost their apartment lease. Um, if you look at every study and talk to everybody who's reasonable, it's all drug addiction and mental illness. And as, as a, as a, a person in this, in the neighborhood, it, it's, it's not a compassion issue. The, the people in this neighborhood are very concerned about the, the, the illness of these people freezing on the streets, dying on the streets. It's the city programs that have decided it's better to let this happen than to come up with some plan uh, to rehabilitate these people. Well, and, and once you let it go f- so far, then the uh, the task becomes sort of, you know, gigantic. And then you even have less impetus to want to take it on uh, because it's so large. And then what do you do? I mean, you just think about the sort of the sort of structural pieces of it. Okay, what do we do, what do, we do with their tents? I mean, uh, do we just scoop them up? I mean, it's their property. What would the courts say? I mean, how can we... How can we break? It gets to be an amazingly complex jumble once you let it go this far. It, it it's so complex, and uh, for for the record, our current uh, city council people, uh, particularly in our district, is is doing a great job. Uh, he's newly elected, and way different than the previous council person. And I think uh, Mayor Mike Johnson, I, I think he's doing everything he's being allowed to do to fix this situation. It's just that they, they still approach it from, uh, let's warehouse these people, you know, get them a, get them an apartment, get them uh, a place to live. And then let's worry about rehabilitation, uh, counseling. And the, in the, in the areas that it's worked across the country, it's been the reverse. They've had the, Counseling, rehabilitation first, and then the housing. Uh, it's a it's a lot cheaper, and I think Aurora is uh, gets a lot of kudos for for that system. Right, I've I've but, seen I've seen a little bit of that, but you know, yeah, and I think you're right because in the past, one of the ways that this type of thing was dealt with, it wasn't nearly this bad, uh, or at least widespread, uh, was. Uh, and often it was done by church groups and so forth, is that before you got fed and before you got a place to sleep, you had to sit through a sermon, you had to do a couple other things. I mean, there was a, there was an agenda before that. Uh, you know, that, uh, you had, there was a trade-off. Doesn't seem to be that that's on, on the mind of any of the enforcement areas now, is it? I, I think that's in their textbook, but that's the chapter that never gets read. Right now, if you're, if you're on the street in downtown, you could get 15 meals a day. You can get free cell phones. You get all the uh, concierge service you could imagine from the city for water uh, uh, services. Uh, there's even somebody that drives around 
and it'll drop brand new, because I've seen it myself, brand new tents with brand new bed, bed rolls inside and, and a vacant spot on a sidewalk. <laughs> so, is this a, is so this, is this a government sanction project or is it just somebody that wants to, you know, keep them down there? You know, I, I do not know who it is, but they, they drive brand new vehicles. They're, they're well funded. Uh, I think they, they, they all think, you know, their intentions are great, I'm sure. But it just perpetuates this. Um, you know, what, what we've had to do in several parts of downtown is when the encampments finally move, uh, people are buying these giant boulders and putting them on the sidewalks so that the encampments can't return. And those boulders are thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, and they, and they look terrible. Right. It, it's not pretty. But it's better than uh, it's better than a tent. And these yesterday, a uh, couple weeks ago, uh, there was a uh, uh, a person inside his tent, and he was uh, using u- propane and butane, Ooh. and that tent exploded. Right. And uh, it exploded. And if there would have been any other tents around it, it would have been it would have been like Gaza. And the fire department guys that came out, they're all young, and they go, oh, yeah, we're putting these fires out every day. So literally every one of these tents is a potential bomb. Well, yeah, I mean, especially as the winter comes on and you get some sort of heating going on in there. And also, uh, if you're not careful, uh, you, uh, especially if you're a little intoxicated by something, uh, you fall asleep and uh, you're, what you're using for heat burns up all the oxygen in there, and that's... Uh, then that's it. So uh, there's there's a lot of downsides to that. You know, you may recall that when some of this first was getting quite to be troublesome, just maybe five years ago, the uh, business owners in a couple of the larger cities took some of their concrete up around their buildings and replaced it with uh, pyramid concrete. Concrete, you know, the where it was uh, yes. popped up all over the place, so it was really not an uncomfortable place to lay down and things like that. And then all the activists in support of these folks came out and protest and, you know, uh, wanted to boycott these places and this. And, they, you know, they caved in. And uh, you don't see that really anymore. Although it was fairly, it's effective, yeah. which is, of course, why they didn't like it. It's, it's a terrible situation. Uh, I feel so sorry for the Denver Police Department and the, and the first responder fire department guys. Uh, they've worked so hard to uh, try to protect all of us downtown and do the right thing. And their hands are tied. There's only limited things they can do. Uh, well, they're not supported. Uh, they're not supported by, you know, the you know the administration. You know, I mean, they're going to get in more trouble than anybody they deal with most of the time in that kind of situation. So they're very leery. And I also see that, you know, it's a when officers do contact people like that, and this is in, in many places, you end up having several officers there because they want witnesses so that they don't get accused of, you know, doing something. And it just becomes a, a just a circus. And then nothing happens. It, it, it's very frustrating. And then, of course, they uh, there was a shooting in lower downtown several months ago. And what came from that shooting was a tremendous organization of the neighborhoods, police department, city, which is all a good thing. But what was exposed is the average 9-11 response time right now, I don't know if this is downtown or just Denver, is an hour 37 minutes. 
Wow, that's amazing. I, I and and we're coming up here. We probably got you know about thirty seconds. But what what do you do in an area like that if you call nine one one and do you get put on hold too? I mean, I've heard some stories about that. So what happens? You'll call nine one one emergency, and you'll get a recording, and it says we'll call you back. And ah. then in about five minutes, you'll get a call back. It'll be the recording, same recording that says we'll call you back. And they'll keep <laughs> calling your phone until it's it's a it's a human. And by that time, it's you know who cares? Wow, that's a that's really interesting. I have to say. Well, thanks for joining us here today. We may contact you again and see how things are going over there. I know that some of the neighborhoods are working on solving their problems. But thanks for joining us. And uh, everybody else, hang on. Hey, everybody, thanks for waiting around. Appreciate that. Well, that little visit with our friend in Denver was uh, not encouraging about visiting the Queen City of the Plains over there, was it? No. I was frankly shocked. There's something about this world we live in right now where... There are times when you think that you're about as cynical and as uh, world-weary as you can be and incapable of really being shocked by very much, and then you get shocked. And that was kind of happening to me. I was listening to what was going on in the Denver area, and I understood the camping and the the problems with the tents and just you know the, all of that that we sort of know. But you know, I hadn't thought about the fires, first of all, and the fire department saying that they were putting them out all the time. But, you know, of course that's going to happen because uh, a lot of these people are going to stay in their tents when the weather gets cold, and they're probably going to use camp stoves and things like that to heat them. Now, most of you people out there understand the idea that, uh, first of all, fire burns oxygen. So if you're in a closed environment and you let all the oxygen get burned up, that's not a good thing for you, particularly if the person doing it is passed out from overuse of drugs so that is an interesting thought the other part of course is that uh, it's quite easy to catch nylon tents and things like that on fire so the whole situation i hadn't really thought about the fire problem but it makes perfectly good sense too much sense actually part that really blew me away was the response time from 911 i know a lot of you probably had the same thought i did was, okay, the 911 response time's like an hour and 12 minutes? That doesn't seem like an emergency. But then to find out that when you call 911, and I, I specifically asked this because I've been hearing from people in other places that 911 was not getting answered directly, or you get on hold and so forth. So apparently the Denver system has a computer program that when you call in, if it's busy, then you get a... Response that says that, and you heard our caller talking about that. Response says, we'll call you back in five minutes. Obviously records your phone call. And you can't block 911, by the way. 911 has a system in it that if you have, you're trying to block your numbers, it doesn't work. Your number comes up anyway. That's just built into it. So they call you back. And what he was saying was every five minutes, it calls you back. And it keeps doing that until you get a real person. And then think about, if the response time is averaging an hour, over an hour, hour and 12 minutes, think about how far you can be into a pretty bad situation before anybody shows up. Now, in a lot of these situations, when somebody shows up, that doesn't mean anything meaningful is going to happen, does it? It just means somebody showed up. So the more I heard about that, the more concerned I was about where things are going. And what I get really concerned about is that people put up with this. 
you would think that people would be out in the streets, and not for the usual reasons, but trying to say, look, we need some protection. What are we paying all this money for? Look at your property taxes. Look at your sales taxes. Look at every other kind of tax you get nailed with. Where's it going? Well, apparently some of it's going, if you're in the metro area and in all of our communities to some extent, it's uh, going to house people. And if you if if you look at the unhoused and you look at some of the, especially the bigger cities, you look at how much they're spending per person on these folks. I mean, they might as well give them an executive level job considering what they're spending on them. Now, part of that, of course, is, and you guys are thinking the same thing I am, it's because it's the government doing it. And the government can never do anything without having a lot of waste, a lot of inconsistent behavior, a lot of repetitive behavior, and then a lot of just, you know, this is some shady stuff that always goes on in these kinds of programs. We know that from COVID, right? How much money was allocated in COVID that they can't even trace, much less the, the amount that they believe was taken by fraud, and they can't figure out how to get that back either. So you can you can see what would happen here. A very uh, a very informative and eye opening discussion, I think. And you folks out there, I don't care where you're at. If you're in Utah, Colorado, listening on the internet, it can come to your town, and it doesn't have to be a very big town. It can be a smaller town than people think this is a big city problem. It's not a big city problem. I live in a small city, and it's a problem. And I talk to people that are in cities smaller than mine, that are towns, and they're starting to have a problem. So you need to pay attention. I know I say this all the time. It's a broken record, I know. It's this idea that I have that we have to pay attention to our federal government. That's very clear. But we can't let our cities, towns, hamlets, <laughs> there's Delaney, uh, grow into the problems of the federal government and the big cities. Because it will happen. And I see some of the candidates on some of these city council races, and they're just the people to do it. And it's partly because nobody examines them very much. So I leave you with that thought, and you have to do what you can do to just make that stop happening. Uh, I I was also wanted to clarify a little bit one of these things from the stories, I don't know, from Thursday, was it? You know, there's a story out there that students walk out of Hillary Clinton's class at Columbia uh, in protest after Israel, anti-Israel students exposed by doxing trucks. Now, if you're not familiar with the story and the background to it, is that so many of these students at especially the Ivy Leagues, apparently, and then others, don't get me wrong, they're, they're not alone, uh, had signed these uh, pretty radical documents essentially supporting Hamas and things like that. So some of these other pro-Israel groups decided if you're going to say that, people ought to know who you are. So they got these people's names and some of their pictures, and they were driving around in these trucks <laughs> around the campus with this information up there. And, of course, these kids went crazy because you're supposed to be able to do what you want and not have any association with your actions. And also, I mean, if, if anybody's going to get doxxed, it's going to be they're going to do it, not not have somebody do it to them. Uh, I don't know what the doxing is. It's just I just don't like that term anyway. But So they were going crazy, and this was a walkout. It wasn't just because they were in Hillary Clinton's class, although 
it would be a good idea. It was they decided this was their protest. I don't know why paying an enormous amount of money to get most of the time a not particularly worthwhile degree, but you're paying a lot of money to be in there. And if you probably divided it by an hour, it's still significant. How you are protesting by not learning. <laughs> how How is that a protest against other people? You're sort of protesting against yourself. You're paying to be there, and you're walking out. The people that are teaching you and running the place and all the extra provosts and DEI officials and the endless amount of administration that overlays universities and systems now, they're still getting paid. And they're getting paid by you, one way or another, if you're one of these kids. So walking out really isn't making a whole lot of difference there. I'm just saying, if you if you think it through. Now, if you're walking off the job on strike, eh, that's a little different. I think that's what they think they're doing. They think, we're going on strike. No, you're not. <laughs> no one's paying you to be there, and you're not producing something such that the people who are employing you are feeling a financial strain. You're not going on strike. You're just leaving something you've paid for. It's sort of like going home and throwing some of your belongings out of the apartment window to protest something. I'll show you. I'll throw my flat screen TV out. All right. <laughs> what that shows me is that you're, you're not very financially aware and you're a little goofy. Now, and it also may be that perhaps you realize, if you're going to walk out on classes, that you're not really learning anything anyway. So you're really not missing out. So that might be a comment on that, too. But that's what's happening. Also, uh, some of these students, <laughs> this is what I thought was interesting. I, I saw the ones at Harvard. Remember, Harvard was really, Harvard's just a waste of time. That were participating in all these uh, pro-Palestinian things like that had went to a a trip, I'm reading it now, a, a trek to Palestine over spring break this year. And then when they returned to Harvard, they set up a graduate students for Palestine. And that's, of course, was the sort of setup for this big protest at Harvard. I wonder what happened over there when this, these graduate students went to spring break in Palestine. It's an interesting question, isn't it? I wonder who they were, who came back, and if they came back with any money, it would be interesting to know, too. Start setting stuff up. I, I'm becoming oddly and, I think, justifiably paranoid. So that's that. Uh, here, another story that I think, Victor Davis Hanson this week is, you know, I, I love reading him. Had uh, something up, and it's up on the website too. But he talked, called it "One Sick War," and he said something surreal, even sick, about the current Gaza war. And I, I had to agree about how we have all of these European and American cities with all these protests, right? And of course, the college campuses are the worst. But some of the cities have a lot of people turning out. New York is not pretty when it comes to uh, anti-Semitism right now, just as an example. And we're seeing this in a lot of places now. We've said before, many of these people just don't know what's going on, and it's easy to fire up people who will want to rebel anyway. And there's always a grain of that in people of a certain age. 
as they as they move through life, they get to a certain age. They want they rebel against the rules of their parents and society is holding them back. I mean, this is something that you know people have been complaining about since Socrates. So that that is right there. So if you are trying to organize people and you want to take advantage of that, college is a good time to do it because they're ready for it for the most part. They're ready to, you know, I'm going to shake the world up. I'm going to change. You know, that's kind of what's going on. And then you just slow walk them, I guess, into whatever it is. And in this case, it's you know, radical anti-Semitism in a lot of cases and uh, really a sort of a hatred or disgust or despising the United States, even though it is their country. Now, I don't think you can really go on for a long time as a nation if you have a significant amount of people in your country that doesn't like it. And we're seeing that. But beyond that, we have an enormous amount of uh, people who are immigrants into the country that appear to not have anything interesting to say about the country other than they don't like it. But they won't leave it. I remember someone said, and I, I talked about it in the show a few months ago, that about some protests uh, down, oh, during the border. And people were waving Mexican flags and this and that. And someone had said that, it was interesting to watch people waving flags of countries they refuse to return to in a country that they will not leave. <laughs> They're protesting a country they will not leave and waving the flags of countries they refuse to return to. There's a there's an irony in that that is completely lost on them, isn't it? And every time I see that, I cannot help but think about that observation but when you read some of the things that are going on in the world right now you start to feel like that we're sort of entering i, I kind of think of the new barbarism isn't it by the way if you wonder where the word barbarian comes from it's an it originally is a greek term and the greeks used it to describe foreign speakers uh, people who were generally you know from maybe that would drift in from like sort of vaguely Germanic or other places like that. And to the Greek ear, they said they sounded like bar bar, bar 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 bar, like that, right? Like we would imitate someone's speech pattern. And so then that became a term that they were just barbaric, barbar. You see how that looks into barbarians. And at first it just meant people who weren't Greeks. And then it meant people who were uncivilized. And the Romans picked it up. And applied that term to pretty much everybody outside the empire. Because if you weren't in the empire, you weren't civilized. And unfortunately, that was true a lot of the time. <laughs> but anyway, so that's where we get the term barbarian. And probably since the, the middle part of the Middle Ages, it's been used to describe just really outlandish behavior that lands outside the uh, mores of the culture. Now, what's interesting about that is that as the culture becomes more accepting of that, I'm not even sure that's barbaric behavior. I guess it would have to be defined by somebody outside of the culture. But if the culture becomes, becomes completely accepting of certain behavior, is it really barbarism or is it just what happens? I, I don't know. It's a sort of a, it's sort of a for, philosophical question, but we're certainly entering some sort of new barbarism in the sense that don't things feel like they're going backward? Now I know we talk about the fourth turning here, you know, from the book and that, you know, that it's a crisis stage and, and so it's a it's a cyclical thing. But in terms of people's ideas, 
mean, and the anti-Semitism isn't just, we're not just talking about it because it's, it's a bad thing for Jewish people. It, it is a, it is a signature of insular tribal thinking that signifies sort of a, a barbarism. And what's especially interesting is so many of these people that are seem to be violently anti-Semitic, and let's leave out the is people of the Islamic faith. But there's a lot of them that don't believe in religion at all that are anti-Jewish. They, many of them, I would suspect, if you went to Harvard and, and if they weren't Islamic students or whatever, don't believe in God at all. So you would ask, well, what exactly is your beef then? Uh, then, oh, the genocide, this, that. Yeah, well... These people, long before this war, didn't like Israel either. And, of course, Zionist and Zionism that they like to talk about is just kind of another word for, you know, anti-Jewish thinking. And it just sort of dresses it up. But it's an interesting observation. You know, during, during the Middle Ages, when there was a lot of persecution of the Jewish people, there were, first of all, there was a religious push from the churches that, you know, that because the Jewish were unbelievers and, you know, and there was a lot of weird things that drove that. And we talked before that in some of the places in the Middle Ages, as we would call it, uh, there was a lot of money owed to some of the Jewish moneylenders. And it was uh, to some people's benefit to have them run out of town so they didn't have to pay them. And you, you see that when you study some of this stuff as well. So, but this new thing we're going on is kind of, kind of new, uh, newish. Certainly, we saw it in the '30s and '40s. Uh, it's always reared its ugly head at certain times, and it can be anything, though. I mean, many times, if you look through history, you see this scapegoating of some segment of society. Usually, it's a segment of society that is somewhat insular. They have their own beliefs or their own neighborhoods, their own, you, you know, things like that. And if you go back on our own history, our American history, you will see this applied to other groups of people that we've almost forgot about. Italians, when they were, when we were first seeing a, a fairly large, you know, influx of Italian immigrants, many of whom didn't speak English and went to neighborhoods in, especially some of the cities, where they sort of were, were insular in a sense, there was a lot of problems with that in terms of what people thought about them. They're suspicious of strangers and people who have a little stranger customs than, than you. This is human nature to some extent. But that was a problem. And it, and was not as bad, however, as the Irish. If you look back, you know, during the Civil War time, uh, just before and during, we had a pretty large influx of Irish into the country because of famine and so forth in Ireland. And people in the cities, New York and so forth, didn't like it. And a lot of people thought, oh, they're coming here to take our jobs because they'll work for less money and this and that. And there, you know, you'd see signs up if you look back historically. In businesses, you know, Irish, no Irish allowed and so forth. It was a very rough time to be, to be of Irish descent at that time. And so these, these things happen. And then when you, when they happen 
and you want to make some political hay out of it, that's when it gets even more dangerous because you don't want it to die down if you're a person who's you know trying to lead the parade on this for some political mileage. And you, you see how confusing this poor, hapless administration is. I mean, you know, we have all this protests against uh, Jews and this ridiculous behavior in the United States, and they're worried about Islamophobia. Okay, <laughs> we don't want that either, uh, but uh, no, we prefer that the people are being more impacted the most. A- and then you see some of the, the craziness, for instance, uh, this, the proportionate response that this administration wants to have. And uh, that, uh, well, you know, they're, they're targeting some of these places, you know, I mean, I think on Friday that they hit a supposed hospital convoy, but that the Israelis said, look, the... They use these hospital convoys to move troops and missiles around because they don't think we'll fire on them. And so if they get, I guess, reliable intelligence on it, they will attack them. And as Victor Davis Hansen pointed out uh, in one of his things that I remembered was, he said, what's interesting is that if you are encouraging the Israelis, for instance, not to attack hospitals, schools, all these kinds of things where they're hiding, Oftentimes, these buildings aren't really being used for that. Then you have to think, well, what would Hamas do if they were attacking Israel? Well, if you decided to be an Israeli Defense Force tactician, you said, ah, we're going to put our troops and so forth, just like the Hamas does. We're going to we're going to put our bases under hospitals and schools and this and that. Uh, it would probably happen that. Hamas would be more likely to attack those spots, right? Because they, they've never shown any interest in, in avoiding that kind of problem. So if you decided to put your military at a soft site, like a hospital or a school or something like that, I don't think there would be the slightest care from Hamas and Hezbollah, for that matter, about launching missiles at it. They'd probably think it was a twofer. I hate to sound so casual about it. So when you think about that, I mean, how can you at the same time feel like that there's some sort of moral equivalency between those two? I know some of you don't want to spend a lot of our money and get involved in foreign wars, and I understand that. And, of course, nobody's more concerned about Israel after the Israelis than probably the Ukrainians because, you know, our focus has been taken off them, and there's a lot of questions about what's going on. But we got to, next week, we have to see what's going to happen. I mean, somebody's going to get more involved, Hezbollah or some more Iranian-backed people. So watch the news and take care of yourselves, folks. We'll be back next week.